Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. And I'm Danica Weger. Danica, welcome to the podcast. We have another guest, but before we get to who you are and why you're here, I have a question for the two of you. This is always (laughs) my favorite part because I never know what's going to (laughs) happen. No, Luke just throws it. I I never know either, so. (laughs) I don't know. I'd say say you're doing, your batting batting percentage is going way up here, David. (laughs) Well, I'm getting better. I'm getting better. <laughs> uh, my question to you is, what's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? Oh. Oh. Huh. Ever in my whole life. Yeah, if you have to if you have to pick something, the most beautiful thing that if you had a camera, you would have filmed it. You mean not trash flying through the sky? Hey, it could be that if you needed it to okay. be. Okay. <laughs> I think uh, I remember one night I was walking. I don't know why, but I was just walking down the road uh, out behind my parents' place. And it was just that point of dusk where trees become this black silhouette mm. on the background of the sky. And I don't know why, but it was just how the branches were reaching into the sky and the black on on you know, light to dark blue as, you know, it's after the sunset, but it's twilight, right? The dust. Right. I think that for some reason, that tree in that moment, maybe not the most beautiful, but it's the most beautiful one I can think of Mm. at this moment. Well, if it's the one that you can think of, I would say that that should be a good contender. Right. It's a good indicator. (laughs) What about you? What about you, Danica? I feel like I should say the moment my son was born, but But in the spirit of the movie we're going to talk about. (laughs) Not the most beautiful feeling. Okay. (laughs) The most beautiful thing you've seen. Okay, that'll save me. Um, I think when you see snow on, well, I talk to you about this sometimes, but when you see snow on like white Christmas lights and there's maybe like one or two inches of snow on the Christmas lights and it's glowing and... Everything around it just doesn't really seem as important mm. anymore. Yeah. Yeah. That's oh, I a like good that. Answer. And there's a warmth to the glow, too. Totally. Yeah. It feels cozy. Yeah. I've had the benefit of being able to think about this for a few days as I was formulating this question. So that doesn't necessarily mean I'll have a better answer. Almost certainly not, but I'm going to try. <laughs> I would say, honestly, probably the most beautiful sight I've ever had. It's kind of like more than just. Like the way you're describing, both of you actually kind of described it. It's like a more of a gestalt thing than a specific thing. But like, I think probably standing up. You mean the... like an empty chair? <laughs> <laughs> is that what that is? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I thought gestalt was like all of the things are greater than the sum of their parts. Oh, well, in gestalt therapy, you do like this empty chair technique. Oh. And anyway. Sorry. Oh, well, I'm not talking sorry about therapy, you. though. <laughs> sorry to interrupt you. <laughs> I just, I want to know what this most beautiful thing is. Well, I would say it was um, standing like at the top of Angkor Wat, looking over the jungle in Cambodia. Oh. 
Uh, really? Yeah, it just made sense that there was like a temple built here. Right. I would say it was uh, Serenity Resplendent. <laughs> wow, there you go. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to take you to come up with that one. <laughs> about 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> that is a very beautiful thing. I've been there as well. Yeah. And just imagining how long it took to make all that as well, because you see temple beyond temple. Yeah. I don't know which one was built first, but it's hard to make things that beautiful without just massive slave labor. Hey? Yeah. <laughs> you just imagine <laughs> the amount of slave labor. It's it. really expensive if you're paying the going rate for such things. There were a few heads lost. <laughs> yeah, because the rocks of Anchor Wat apparently don't aren't anywhere near where the jungle like where in that jungle where it was built. So they had <laughs> so to they just had to carry them. <laughs> yeah, I think they utilized elephants too, but still, nevertheless, if any listener has never been to Cambodia when COVID's over, definitely put it on your list. It's it's amazing. And just like, there's like a zephyr going through the forest at all times. So you just have like this really light, warm breeze always in the trees. And it's just so quiet. And uh, yeah, it's just, I'd say that would probably be the most beautiful thing. I can also hook you up with a really talented tuk-tuk driver. Oh, yes. Oh, there you go. So, How much does it cost to go on a vacation to Cambodia? Uh, you can do it on the cheap pretty much. I, I would say maybe two to three grand. You get flights for about $700 sometimes, and then you can spend about $30 a day on a budget. Wow. And you stay. probably live pretty well. Yeah. You're staying in a, a decent-sized guest house. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a beautiful country. Yeah. You can get yeah. meals for a dollar on the street. There's um, it's It's the most interesting country I've ever been to. Wow. That's, a, that's saying something because you've been to quite a few. Well, nothing compared to our any European listener, <laughs> but uh, <No. laughs> but I did all right for a North American. Thankfully, most of our listeners are in North America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, they'll be really impressed with us now. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a huge conversation for another time. The country of Cambodia, but that was that would be my one. So, in case you ha- didn't read the title of this episode, we are today discussing the 1999 Sam Mendes directed Alan. Ball, written movie, American Beauty, one of my all-time favorite films. But before we talk about that, as you have heard, we have a a guest. (laughs) We have a guest today, Danica Wieger, a longtime friend of mine. Uh, I think first time caller. First time caller, yes. (laughs) I think we met probably when we were kids. I think I was like ten or eleven, and you were like nine. So yeah, Danica has been a longtime friend, and. She's kind of like the first ever fan of Really True Fiction, actually. True. She was, well, she was the one that wanted Really True Fiction to come into being. Yeah, Yeah, before its inception. (laughs) Before it was even there. Sometimes even more than me. (laughs) She was a fan of the idea before it became a reality. Yeah. And uh, if, in case you're not sure, uh, if you have ever come across her online, her pseudonym is Kevin Malone69. So (laughs) make sure you keep an eye out for that. But no, anyway, just uh, really glad you're joining us. I mean, this feels appropriate. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. I don't know. I mean, tell us what you want to say. Well, I'm just happy to be here. It's pretty fun to see David's face for the first time after hearing your voice for countless hours. Well, yeah, I guess you never knew what he looked like. Yeah, so that's kind of a trip. It'll be fun. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, uh, Danica, why don't you give us the rundown on American Beauty? Because I always ask... Or, or you too, like we asked potential guests what book yes. or movie they'd want to do, and you picked this one, so 
So why did I pick yeah, why, it? Yeah, why did you pick, why, of, of all, I mean, I am very glad. I mean, we've talked about American Beauty a few times on the podcast before in reference, yes. but why was this one you wanted to do? I guess there's a lot of movies or books along a similar line, maybe even more modern, because this came out in, what, 1998? Nine. This is, oh, this is a joke for the wrong podcast, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, you're the only crossover. <laughs> Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm glad you get it. Okay. Well, at least I can get my own jokes. Yeah. Um, I don't, I, well, Luke and I were talking about this movie the other night, and uh, he was surprised I'd only seen it twice before I rewatched it. And you'd seen it like, what, 20 times or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I think I've actually oh, seen man. this about 20 times. I don't, th- I don't think I've seen it 20 times. I'm probably at like four or five. Mm. Right. And I also didn't see it till I was about 25, which I think maybe is a bit older than most people in our kind of generation. But I just remember it leaving me with a bit of a feeling of like, okay, I can, should make some changes maybe, or just <laughs> like, not in that sense. I identify more with, I would say, the angry teenager character, which I'm sure we're going to get into right. <laughs> for a, forever a bit of an angry teenager. I think it's just, it covers a lot of things that, people want to talk about but don't often bring up unless they're kind of pushed to that place and they're great things to to work through mm. so i don't know does that yeah no <laughs> satisfying I, I um this probably won't surprise either of you but i love this movie because it's a movie about existentialism it's really not i think it says like this movie's about nothing right like nothing happens in this movie <laughs> But in a sense, it's also about everything. Exactly, exactly. And I'm actually really glad we're doing this after we did Infinite Jest, because that was the book, and David Foster Wallace was who I thought of the most with this movie, because so many of the characters' struggles are just these unconscious reactions to the minutia of their life. And obviously, the unconscious reactions build and build and build until tragedy or missed expectation right how old were you when you first saw this movie david uh i would have again uh, this is a kendall grant special he introduced me to this movie when i guess i would have been 19 i think right uh and he he obviously being a film connoisseur wanted to introduce me to kind of what he thought was the canon of the 90s and uh, this was one of the one of the films that he thought was of the highest caliber and the thing, again, that I always liked about uh, watching movies with Kendall and our friend Amber was afterwards we would just go to Tim Hortons, drink coffee, and just talk about our thoughts about it and what it all meant and the symbolism. Yeah, we call and, that uh, really, really true fiction practice, right? Yeah, it's like really what really true fiction is deep down. And I, I just love that about this podcast too, right? Is I like that we're expanding to guests because it's really just really good conversations about the symbolism and stuff that we really appreciate and the movies that are most or or stories that are most profound to us. Mm -hmm. And this might not even be the best movie of this type, but it was probably the most mainstream one. I think, you know, it won picture of the year when it came out, like it won best film. Didn't it win multiple? Yeah. It won a couple, but I know it won that one for sure. Yeah. And so just like, didn't Kevin Spacey get something for that one? I think he won Best Actor, maybe. Really? Yeah. Well, I he was so. probably nominated. Actually, I yes. think almost every actor in this film could have been nominated. It was... Totally. <laughs> the performances were incredible. 
Yeah, this reminds me of like a Blue Valentine-esque performances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so when Danica and I were watching it, we were talking about like, would this movie get made now? You know, and I probably not. Probably not exactly like like it was made. I think it could, but I've been thinking a bit about this. I think for sure the lead would be a woman. Sure, yeah. And not not because of all the other reasons every movie is made with a female lead nowadays, but (laughs) I think because... Just the way like motherhood has changed over right. the last 20 years, perhaps, mm. and the repression of female sexuality, maybe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Oh, man. Is that that's a topic we should get into? That would be a great one. Yeah. <laughs> There's going to be a lot to discuss in this, but I think it's interesting that, uh, that this is definitely a piece of its time, mm. right? I loved the late 90s aesthetic. Hey, I know. The, the it, big it, camcorder, like the recording and the TV yeah. and all of the like tech was awesome. It's so, uh, it feels like it's so nostalgic because that time was so formative for, I think, all of us. Yeah. And, yeah. And we even talked about it when we watched it. You probably do this too, but whenever there's a movie that comes out or is set in a time when I was alive, I always think about how I would have fit into the story, right? Or like, because <laughs> right, right. like in American Beauty, I would have been 12. And so how yeah. does a 12-year-old fit into this story? And it's like, not really. Like, this isn't a movie for 12-year-olds, obviously. And yet I kind of, at that age, at about 12 or 13, you that's when you kind of start noticing the world around you a bit more. And you start True. noticing culture a bit more broadly. And so I actually have memories of being... 12 when American Beauty came out in theaters and I just remember like it was a movie everyone was talking about it it was it was a huge huge movie in a way that I think it would be hard for a movie like this yes it could be made I don't think it'd be a huge movie now though if it came out because it's not a superhero movie right like this is something I've been thinking about a lot of popular culture is what are we you know what is the the general consciousness when something becomes popular it's like mm. what is on the general consciousness exactly I think, like you've said there have been a lot more movies about existentialism and i think we're moving away from that to more practical ways of thinking just in the national conscious or the you know the right. the public consciousness but at that time a lot of people were just kind of living their routine lives not you know being aware not observing their reality and what ended up happening right we we got in a situation where they they're dead. They're basically dead before they <laughs> die. Uh, yeah, and now there's a thing called millennials, and I think millennials kind of well, the whole idea of a millennial, isn't it? Like, well, not the whole idea, but you know, <laughs> it's just a bunch of people who never really want to have the full responsibilities that their parents took on before them. Mm-hmm. in a way yeah it's almost like it's like we we the pendulum sw- swung too far now we don't want to do anything we want no responsibilities yeah. and there's a whole this critique is too much responsibility right <laughs> yeah there's a big movement for minimalism and right. spending your money on experiences rather than things mm-hmm. and well yeah that's a huge theme of american beauty is all of these people have too much money to know what to do with too much time on their hands an inability to consciously take on the kind of conversations they need to have with their friends and family to feel like they have some sort of ownership over their own lives and so they're just kind of like uh there's something kind of definitely david foster wallace remind me of just some like uh, the the unconscious unto death 
right? And so the hero's journey of American Beauty is this maybe imperfect, but attempted triumph over your own existential place in a mundane world, or so you see it, uh, especially through the characters of Lester and Ricky in the film. Danica, since you're the guest, would you like to give us the plot rundown such as it exists? As long as you both fill in any gaps. I mean, it's a pretty complex plot. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) True, true. So I guess, would you call it a plot? Uh, The plot is kind of like Lester's... life narration yeah the, I think. The, the chronological events we'll yeah. call it the chronological events <laughs> yeah things literally happen in time all right <laughs> <laughs> thanks for breaking it down for me yeah no problem <laughs> so i guess it starts out when you hear you hear from lester his internal thoughts just being super i don't know depressing and mundane and you learn pretty fast that he's upset with well not upset but just living this existence of not really being invested in anything his life is and that he's gonna die yeah yeah you find out right away he's gonna die that was a pretty important, <laughs> important part but then his line is in a way it's i'm a dead already way, i mean it's a weird way to start a movie exactly yeah you yeah. already know what's gonna happen but i don't think that takes away from it at all no no i agree i agree Maybe you should actually do this part. You have a way better memory at me for important details. Sure, fair enough. Okay, so <laughs> part of the con- like the narrative conceit of the film is that we get a lot of voiceover from Lester, so we're getting first-person voiceover narrative of the kind of third-person style of the movie where we're getting into the lives of a lot of these different characters. And I'm pretty sure he's the only one we get voiceover of. I don't think any other character gives us a voiceover. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, we learn... Immediately that Lester is this, uh, played by Kevin Spacey, this middle, probably upper middle class, suburban father and husband, his wife, Carolyn, played by Annette Benning, and his daughter, Jane, played by Thora Birch. And they're just this like run-of-the-mill average cookie-cutter American family. And yet, as the movie unfolds pretty predictably... Uh, and I think this was, as you were saying earlier, David, in the consciousness of especially probably the late 90s. Yep. yep. Uh, the American dream unto dysfunction, right? Because the uh, the amount of well, dysfunction think, like, is incredible. That's kind in of the fourth turning-esque nature of, of this film. And that's what's so beautiful about this film. It's critiquing the kind of the malaise of modernity, right? It's yeah. like, oh, we have too much, but we mm-hmm. but we're all bored and our lives feel meaningless. And we yeah. go to our jobs to make our money so yeah. that we can raise our kids who don't end up liking us very much and, you know, our <laughs> partners that we're tired of, right? Yeah. And this will be significant to the plot later. Their neighbors on one side are these two gay men, both named Jim. And a part of Lester's frustration we see early in the movie, really good scene setting is just how annoyed he is with the conversations his wife has with the neighbors over the roses, <laughs> like right. how much she right. cares about the garden and the roses. And then additionally, there's new neighbors on the other side and it's Colonel Frank Fritz, I think, or Fitz. And that's played by Chris Cooper and his wife. I never really caught her name, but She's played by Allison Janney, and she's a character that I think is supposed to have some mental deficiencies or something like that. And then their son, Ricky, played by Wes Bentley. So those are the six main characters of the movie. And then also Angela, played by Mina Suvari, who is Jane's friend from school. And as the movie unwinds, we just see Lester 
quit his job, blackmail people at work because he's met this Ricky guy who's like inspired him to be more kind of carpe diem, seize the day type of. Uh, it's you know what it is. Ricky reminds me of the the perfect combination of seize the day meets the subtle art of not giving a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Totally. Yeah, yeah. So- see, this is really it. Really, is the a generational film? Mm-hmm. Like, I think th- this is in the psyche of millennials. This yeah. film is the psyche of millennials. Totally, totally, <laughs> and and older millennials, like people born in the early '80s, I think, and late '70s, because they would have been young adults when this movie came out. So, what happens as the movie goes? We just get kind of these like. Not exactly vignettes, but just different little interplays between the different characters. And Jane's struggle is that her dad doesn't pay any attention to her and pays all of this like lustful attention to her friend. And on top of that, her friend just is really shallow and wants shallow things. And that doesn't. And, and then and then additionally, Angela expects the same kind of shallow things out of Jane, which makes her feel unseen. She feels so unseen throughout the whole movie, except by Ricky, by supposedly which supposedly her best friend. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and her dad. And interestingly, and I want to get into this, I think also her mom. Right. Oh, definitely. One of the things that's really interesting is that her mom is so offended that Jane has the same opinion of her as she does of her dad. And right. and then Lester like gets in shape starts working out and all of this is building towards a climax at the end where lester is killed by frank the neighbor who has been extremely homophobic throughout the whole film and then it just before he kills lester like the scene before he tries to kiss lester so obviously there's some repressed homosexual feelings in yeah, internalized in, homophobia no, totally in frank and so he is so ashamed again of that. i think this film really was one of the first to address that mm-hmm. in a really public way yeah I, I think we we should talk about that for sure when we talk about frank because i don't know if it was ahead of its time because i don't remember but it seemed like it was in that in that way and, and yet throughout all of this all of this um Malays were left at the end with the hopeful message of beauty and Lester before he dies remembering all of the beautiful things in his life and uh, especially the character of Ricky emphasizing beauty so even though it's in the title it's just this kind of like subtle undertone of the film that that comes overt at the end in a way that I I you know I still choke up a bit yeah when I see that scene at the end with him thinking about all of the things that he remembers that are beautiful and they're not really major things like no major life events it's like jane in a halloween costume or With something sparklers like that. Or, right? yeah, yeah and his wife on a carnival ride yeah and then the last voiceover if i remember correctly is kind of like a psa it's like don't forget to see the beautiful things or something like yeah. that you know yeah so Again, not a not a plot movie at all. Very character-based, existential. You know, every time I watch this movie, I remember why I love it. Sometimes when I watch it, even if like the first half hour, I'm like, because I always have this, and I'm sure you two can relate to this. When I go back to things I loved when I was younger, I'm like half scared it won't be as good as I remember. Totally. You know, or I've I've built true, it up in my mind. And I was half worried about that because even though I have seen American Beauty about 20 times, it's probably been about eight or nine years. I watched it a lot in university. And so I'm thinking like, oh, man, have I 
remembered this movie in a way that it's but no man the last the last act of this film i'm like wow this is incredible this is the center of the bullseye of existential fiction i think oh for sure it's also simply beautiful yeah to watch it is a gorgeous looking movie isn't yeah. it you know what kind of uh this might sound weird i'm trying to remember the name of it uh the shins playing in a lot oh uh garden state ah yeah. this this film makes me feel like Garden State makes me feel. Yeah, Definitely. that's a good comparison. And it reminds me of Office Space a little bit as well, which I think oh, really? came out around. The- well, just like that. yeah. Well, there's the the quitting the job, the hating your dated. Yeah, I see what <laughs> yeah. you're saying. Oh yeah, that's true. And then it also made me think a bit about Breaking Bad, which I also love. Mm. Setting your life on fire. Right. In that sense. Hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just before we get into it, I want to thank Danica big time for being on the podcast. Uh, thank you, Danica. Thanks. Thanks it's for an taking honor. the time. Uh, thanks for being the OG fan. Thanks for being the fan of Really True Fiction uh, several years before it was manifest. <laughs> I got you. I got you. One, of, uh, one and, of the people who keeps the dream alive. Exactly. <laughs> For anyone out there listening, you can find us on all major podcasting apps. And if you subscribe, you'll get notified and, uh, and or an update every time a new episode is released. We, we release episodes on Sundays. And uh, tell all your friends if you like it. Word of mouth is, is, uh, is an awesome way to, um, if you have any other fiction fans in your life who like to meditate on the stories. And you can find us on Facebook. Uh, we have a group, Really True Fiction, you can join. And uh, you can send us an email, reallytruefiction at gmail.com if you feel so inclined. So I thought we could start with Lester the ostensible main character. So Danica, what are your what are some of your notes on Lester? Oh my gosh, I have so many notes on Lester. <laughs> I mean, at first I guess it seems pretty cringy that the I guess he's what would you say is the Yeah, how only... was he at the start of the movie? Like how would you phrase that? <laughs> cringy, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, as soon as you know he has a fantasy about a teenage girl. Yeah. Then you're that like, doesn't help. <laughs> um and I guess like for you to how did that make you feel watching those scenes that he of his fantasies of the teenage of, of yeah Angela? as a guy in 2020 oh. just i i always remember just feeling really sad like that that his life had descended to such a small place that that was the thing that he dreamed of yeah wasn't love it wasn't good strong relationship it wasn't even achieving something like it had just descended to like someone who was attractive, like on a Raleigh biological level. Because from an animalistic perspective, from a sociological perspective, it's like you've lost your humanity when you're when you're you know seeing children that way. But from a biological perspective, that's not the case, yeah. right? And so, like, I love that distinction that Tim Urban makes between you know the enlightened self and the animal self. Right. Like the animal self only cares about survival, but the enlightened self has higher values. Yeah. And uh, I guess it's just, I thought it was, now that I saw it the second time, I was like, what a great depiction of just letting your entire world crumble and your, basically your consciousness be already dead. Well, and animalistic is the perfect way to put it because it's, it's more like she's a, a trophy piece of meat that he's hunted but he doesn't even he doesn't even rise to the level of like being a hunter <laughs> you know like he's he's kind of like no. a, he's a voyeur uh, on yeah. this teenage girl and i guess it made me really think about how what it means to be a mensch versus either a mindless alpha or a kind of pathetic 
nothing like like Lester is, right? Because right, right. like I've been thinking a little bit about this. Um, what is the Aristotelian golden mean of masculinity? Right, I think ah, that I like is this. a uh, <laughs> that is a useful thing to start talking about in 2020, if I will, yeah. <laughs> All right. And so, just you know, quick for any listener, the Aristotle in his Ethics talked about the golden mean of like if you're too courageous, you're foolhardy, and if you are too lacking in courage, you are a coward. And the golden mean is like kind of like perspective, courage, or intelligent bravery like there's a good middle ground there here's a cool example of this for the listeners our other cousin daniel mm. uh, owns a roofing company and he was his crew was working on and this, these people came out and just started harassing him and his workers right like every day yelling at them threatening to fight them like really and, and yeah in an animalistic sense you just be want to let's fight let's go right let's get this done but I'm really proud of Daniel. He just didn't. He called the cops. He dealt with the condo board. Like he, and and that's an example of courage. Wouldn't mm. feel like restraining yourself, right? Exactly. But like you said, foolhardiness is like maybe he is bigger and stronger, but it doesn't matter because the end. It's it's sacrificing your emotional catharsis in a given moment. Yeah. For the future. Ah, good good job, Dan. Proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, I want to attach this idea to masculinity through what this this whole element of Lester's character in it is that um, I'm, I, we all know the term toxic masculinity now. And I think it's a true term. I just think it's been used a little bit too carelessly for my philosophical tastes. So I want to introduce the idea of vital masculinity as the golden mean between toxic masculinity and, I don't know, the patheticness that we see. I don't know exactly what you'd call it, like the cringy masculinity, maybe, of uh I mean, Lester. I think that the technical term is soy boy. Oh, okay. Well, I've never heard that before. Is that, like, because they eat tofu? Yeah, exactly. Oh, roasted. <laughs> I don't really like tofu, but uh, I know people who do like tofu that I wouldn't call soy boys, so... It's not flush. I, I, I was joking. It's just a term that's used for what you're describing, okay. I think. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that, well, part of Lester's redemption in the movie is too bad he couldn't have learned earlier that really he shouldn't be wanting a relationship with someone who doesn't know the world yet, right? Yeah. Like that, yeah. that is so unequal. And yet, so that it makes me think he's internalized this idea that he wouldn't deserve a relationship or he isn't up for it with anyone who he could be an equal with which is not part of vital masculinity. And I guess I'm saying I think vital masculinity involves improving yourself through discipline and learning about the world. So it's like it's as simple as like learning how to play instruments, reading books to become interesting, uh, having the kind of, as you say, David, having the kind of wherewithal to not get into animalistic altercations with provocateurs at the at the roofing site, like our cousin, right? Like, yeah, exactly. like that's exactly. part of that golden mean that you're talking about. And it's, and, and, and it's also because it's that restraint that is also not too far the other way towards what I think is a legitimate category of toxic masculinity, which is just like throwing your chest out, beating it and saying, fuck you. I'm the strongest. Uh, <laughs> that, that's, that's a shitty way to live. You know, like, um, Hitchin says a gentleman is someone who's only ever rude on purpose, right? So it's it's part of being aware of your presence. 
and you know, there's that great line from that Patrick Rothfuss novel, novel, The Name of the Wind, where he says, you know, a wise man fears a quiet man's anger, mm. right? Yeah. A quiet man has more control over himself. Therefore, if he gets mad, it's like it's a much bigger deal than it's someone who's just always losing their temper. Right. Did that answer your question, Danica? Well, Sorry, we kind of... Just- yeah, like- <laughs> totally. I think that's really interesting. Part of the problem is that Lester's inequities go so much deeper than 2020's version of what Me Too should be. Yeah. Well, right? And, like his, and deep down, his, Lester, his problem is he has no self-possession. And he's so lonely. And yeah. just like everyone else in this movie does not feel seen. Mm-hmm. And so when he's when he's like behind the door in his... Uh, behind the door from Jane's bedroom listening to them talk and he hears Angela mention his name and kind of yeah, he's like, like, how fucking oh. weird is that scene <laughs> it's so weird but you're like oh, okay he's, he's like a 12 year old boy totally. creeping on an older sister's friend but it's the first time anyone's <laughs> taking notice of the poor guy true true in a very long time yeah he's not seen at his job his wife hates him like his kid obviously well she feels Doesn't, unseen too yeah, but despises him yeah, I guess though what David and I are saying though is that we kind of see that as Lester's fault. Yeah, like nobody yeah. else's fault. Oh, I one hundred percent blame Lester for Lester's problems in this film. Yes. Yeah, I guess Ricky's his hero in mm-hmm. a sense, and you can kind of see Lester as a hero in some ways too. But also he's super self sabotaging. Yeah. And selfish. Like I don't know if you've ever noticed this in in the real world. I don't know if you're supposed to say that. <laughs> You can cut that part out. No, no, no. We uh, we have an MTV subsidiary. <laughs> okay. <laughs> when you've noticed people who are in situations they obviously hate and can't stand, instead of having the balls to change their situation in a respectable way, they self-sabotage mm. and make it so they are so unlikable that the other person has to change. Ah, And that's something... Oh, I, yes. I, I, I've lived that reality. Right. Yeah, it's super it's horrible. super selfish, and the other person ends up feeling like an ass. Right. Well, this is actually something we talked about, I think it was our Prisoner of Azkaban episode, where one of the best attributes I found of Harry Potter is his ability to be an, an agent in his own life, and not just a passive traveler on the decisions of yeah. others. Yeah. And yeah. Lester, in the first part of the film, is a passive traveler on the decisions of others, and then all he's left with are his pathetic fantasies of like his the best part of his day is jerking off in the shower or he just drools over his daughter's friend. Like how empty does your life really have to be for those to be the things that preoccupy you? Well, you must have nothing to do. Well, see, but it's a it's a double tragedy because it's a it's an existential tragedy for Lester and it's a social tragedy and a familiar one for his wife and his daughter. Yes. And his wife is a little bit less forgivable in all this, but she's obviously not attracted to Lester and for good reason. But even sadder to me is Jane's, the the tragedy that comes to Jane because, you know, what does she say? Like her dad is just like basically a lustful and pussy whipped over her, her friend. Like that's no kind of father figure. She says something like that, right? Like he's no kind of father figure to me because of these things. There's no strength in him. There's no strength in him. Yeah. And so even though Lester's change of heart and change of presence in the movie, I think is good for him. I wasn't totally sure of how good it was for his family. 
I think it would be good for his next family, not right. his current family. <laughs> right, hopefully, yeah. He wasted 25 years of his life doing everything society told him he should. Mm-hmm. And if he just stopped doing that earlier, he would have been so much happier. Yeah. And possibly have more kind of perspective and wherewithal to start working on the things that he used to love about being a father to Jane, right? Because it's clear that he used to be pretty motivated by that at one point in his life. And I think ultimately Lester's, the great warning of the movie is how easy it is to, again, passively slide into malaise and social niceties and comfort, right? We've oh, talked man, about- I've been thinking about that particular thing a lot. Yeah, like, comfort. Uh, um, I think we said something like the trappings of comfort open up the passive life and the admirable side of Lester is him rebelling against that mm-hmm. when he can not always well and artfully, it's but. almost like he's got his hero's journey on in his internal world as he's waking up to his own existence and refusing to just float down the river of his life but i don't think he makes the right con- he doesn't I don't think he comes to the right conclusions mm Right. His conclusion is basically, I'm going to be hopelessly selfish. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's true. He doesn't, I guess, probably if he was going to be as forthright and fair, he should probably at least break up with Carolyn. And Danica, maybe what this meant when you said that this reminded you of Breaking Bad, it's kind of like this is kind of what happens to Walter White. He goes bad and he becomes really selfish. Right? Yeah, but, totally. But he, at least he wakes up to like his own existence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he also has a, a time stamp on him, I guess, in a sense that Lester doesn't necessarily know about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. True. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's just, it feels like, I, I really, I enjoyed Lester's awakenings, I guess you'd say, like how Lester is so impressed with when Ricky just quits his job and he sticks up against his boss and kind of blackmails them. And, and and it kind of reminded me a little bit of Fight Club, the scene in Fight Club where the narrator beats himself up. Uh, Lester Doesn't dangles. that tell you so much about how that generation felt about their job? <laughs> exactly. Totally. Yeah. Well, and I was thinking, what was going on in 1999 or around that time? Like, In terms of if this would stand the test of time and watching it now or in making it now, what was going on then? Uh, honestly, and David would probably know more about this than me, but my first guess would just be like tons and tons of wealth. Yeah. Just yeah, this was the, was this was the internet problem. boom. This was the dot-com boom. So everybody had tons of money because they were all putting it in. Simil- kind of similar to what's happening now. Like we're seeing a lot of stocks go through the roof because people just have money in their board. Mm-hmm. and. A lot of that's because we're all stuck in our homes, but right. <laughs> yeah. Can you hear the dogs? Yeah, but that's okay. I mean, I was just telling Danica <laughs> earlier. It's I, it'll be fun to get a dog in at some point because uh, <laughs> sometimes I listen to podcasts and there'll be a dog and you'll just hear the host being like, "Shut the fuck up, Charlie," or something. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> so no problem. All right. I mean, something that David and I have talked about a lot on this podcast, and I think that this is why this is like, <laughs> this is almost a redundant movie for us to do because we've talked about so many of the themes right. of this movie before, yeah. but I just love how well attenuated they all are in this film. When you have 
resources, when you have wealth, uh, and this is, you know, probably, an, uh, it's not even totally understood by me as someone who is still like globally quite wealthy mm-hmm. <laughs> from that perspective. It's like the idea of going in, it's that scene at the end of the Hurt Locker where the guy goes in to the grocery store when he's back in America from Iraq and he just sees like hun- like a hundred different kinds of cereal and he doesn't know what yeah. to do. So yeah. he goes back yeah, to Iraq to find meaning, broken. right? Yeah. And so our hypothesis is something like wealth breeds comfort, mm-hmm. which breeds malaise which breeds a lack of meaning Mm -hmm. and i think that this is kind of also what i mean i'm making all sorts of name dropping connections here but this is kind of another thing dostoevsky talks a little bit about about how humans will actually rebel against their own comfort because of a lack of meaning that comes with it and uh in a very minor way that's lester's journey is rebelling against his own comfort because Mm -hmm. of how little meaning he gets out of it from a first person sense you know, and to that extent, it is a little bit inspiring. His journey when we were watching it, my one of my fa- this is one of my favorite movie scenes ever, and it's very understated. But it's the scene where Carolyn comes home and she sees the red car in the driveway. He just bought a Firebird because yes. it was the car yes. he always wanted. <laughs> yeah, and he's in a good mood, and because he's in a good mood, she's like reminded a little bit of the old Lester. And so she's like a little bit turned on by it. Yeah, you can she's tell. Into it. Yeah, she's into it. And even though and then she's he like spills wine on the couch. Well, he he almost spills beer, and then she says, "Oh, you're gonna spill on the sofa." And he's like, "It's just a couch." And then she says, "It's a three thousand dollar couch." And then he and this line that I love, he says, um, "This isn't life. It's just stuff, and it's become more important to you than living." Well, honey, that's just nuts. And obviously, as I'm sure both of you can attest to, that that is a line that speaks quite deeply to my soul, being a dyed-in-the-wool functionalist. <laughs> Over, uh, I always get a kick out of how they're called vanities. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that is funny. Uh, and so, like, yeah. that element of Lester's redemption I find inspiring. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. No, I, I think he is inspiring, and it has inspired, essentially, a generation. But I guess... I just wish he would be come to a little bit more finding meaning from others as well. Because if we only find meaning in ourselves, even if we're happy, we 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 become fundamentally destructive forces in the universe. I think, mm. right? Because if it's all like this is the kind of this is maybe the great lie of our generation. The generation mm. before the great lie was, you know, do everything right the right way, you'll be happy. And so we see him breaking from that lie. Now, the lie I think we have to break out of is you're enough for you. Well, none of us can exist in a, in a vacuum. Yeah. Right. Where it's it's impossible for you. Like we, we weren't born in a vacuum. We can't eat like we need someone to we need plumbers. We need carpenters. We need mm. ele- we need power engineers like to, to sustain this life of supposed me fulfillment. We need an army of people doing their specialities to actually live that way. We need community. And I think that's what he, what he fails to understand yeah. here is, you know what, maybe, and like you pointed out, is it great for his family? No. Not really. It becomes fundamentally selfish. Horribly traumatic, I'm sure, for the daughter and the mother. Totally. And there's the the balance between, like, I think there's a lot of truth in that only we can be responsible fully for our own happiness or fulfillment in life but the other side of that is that doesn't excuse us from not contributing to anyone else's 
Mm-hmm. Oh, so I, I like that. And may, maybe I'd add to that. We are responsibility responsible for our own happiness regardless of circumstances. But that doesn't mean we aren't also responsible for other people's happiness. Like in the sense of like we can't just go around causing misery. Yeah. Well, I mean, to the extent that other people care about us or are interested in our well-being, that needs to be taken into account when we make decisions about our own happiness. Right? Yes. Because yes. It's it's more of like a social reconstruction of the John Stuart Mill point of like my freedom to swing my hand ends where your nose is, right? <laughs> um, right. My freedom to make decisions for my own life needs to be mindful of the fact that those decisions are also going to affect the psychology of other people because they care about me. And that's a tough negotiation in life. And I think that what this movie is really highlighting is that this is what your this is what life will be like if you eschew those responsibilities with the people around you. Well, you know when you talk about the square and you're like, if you go into the one court quadrant, you get four more quadrants and, yeah, and yeah, the deeper yeah. you go. I think that's one of these examples, right? Where yes, a person needs to reach that existential place of being responsible for their own happiness. But then that's only the first step in mm. a journey of opening up to the entire world. And like bringing good, uh, letting good channel through you to others too, right? Not, yeah. not you know, keeping it all to yourself and like becoming a little island unto yourself, but rather becoming a conduit mm-hmm. for that level of self-confidence and self-awareness to the rest of the world, right? Yeah, and I mean, because of all of this, <laughs> ideally, years ago, Lester and Carolyn would have started talking about the very first thing that what happens when they drift apart. Right. I mean, this is something that's been really on my mind a lot from some not not on my mind specifically this thing, but just this kind of concept of something Jordan Peterson has talked about is that um, the moment you are annoyed or frustrated with something your partner does, that's exactly when you need to tell them that like you need to actually address when it arises every single thing. And obviously that can be extended into friendship or any other relationship that is meaningful to you or that is important to you. And if you realize that that relationship is not becoming meaningful to you, that's also something important to talk about to that person. (laughs) Right. You know, and and so um, the reason why I think I resonate so much with David Foster Wallace in this movie is that basically every character except Ricky and maybe even Ricky a little bit has unconsciously slid into their own private hell and because it was unconscious, the double tragedy is that they're in hell and they don't even know why they're in hell and they don't know how to get out. Yeah, they, they just lived an unconscious, unaware, unobservant life. Mm. And then one day they woke up and like, why, how did I get here? Why am I here? Well, you should probably know why you are in a place, right? It should have been like, I remember making these decisions, which led me to this outcome. Mm-hmm. And if that isn't happening in your life, it means you're not really, you're not taking your own free agency very seriously. Yeah, I mean, one of the very first narrative lines that Lester says in his voiceover is, in a way, I'm dead already. Which again, reminds me of the David Foster Wallace, if you worship X, you'll die a thousand deaths before your final one, right? And it's hard to even know what Lester worships. (laughs) Uh, I guess his... I guess himself at the end of the day. He worships himself, but he also kind of worships his urges 
right? I think yeah, I think part that's a good like he he's, he worships his, his urges, most, which he will worships let him down. his like most basic desires, like yeah. the vo- the most basic. And like another, I mean, yeah, this will happen many times further in the in the foreverness of this podcast. But another Hitchens line that has always really stood with me is that he says booze makes a, a wonderful servant and a terrible master. And it all just is totally about who's in control of what existentially and psychologically in your own life, right? Like is Lester in control of his urges or is his urges in control of him, him being his conscious reflection on his life, right? Like obviously there's nothing wrong with him having sexual urges and interests, but if he's noticing that's happening to him, with a teenager, he needs to reflect on that, think about why that is to figure out how to grow from that and move on, right? And yeah, and, and put exactly. it into something more age appropriate for sure, but just even like life experience appropriate, I think, you know? Someone who can actually appreciate Lester for who he is. And so that's the like vital masculinity I'm talking about. It's like Lester, and he starts to do it a little bit, develop himself in a way that some other autonomous adult person can look at him and say like, hmm, I'm interested in getting to know that better because there's something menschish about the way he carries himself and the way he is. Right, right, you know? right. Because he's not, the, the truth is he's not even going to get what he wants out of Angela, right? Other than, you know, let's, you know, 30 seconds He's going to get... Yeah, there's, there's she's just going to be anything to get in a sense, Because she's right? filling her own existential shallowness and, and gap and lack, right? Yeah. As we learn about her later. A lie. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and I mean, <laughs> this was so uncanny to me, the scene where he... Because um, it's, it's the scene where he finds out that Angela is a virgin, and that's when he... That's the moment he decides not to sleep with her and like yeah. actually yeah. sees her as more like a child that he needs to protect versus someone that he could take advantage of, which is such an uncanny irony given Kevin Spacey, <laughs> the actor in real life, <laughs> and his, his inability to have done that <laughs> with uh, young people in his own life. And maybe we'll talk about that at the end, about like the difference between actor and character. But I don't know. Any other thoughts on Lester? I guess it's just a really good reminder to... And maybe he would get there in the end if he wasn't killed, but to when you're looking for those things that often they exist within yourself rather than externally. And yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, what is he looking at just when he's shot? He's looking at a picture of his family. Mm-hmm. Right? He is remembering Carolyn and Jane in moments where he was vitally in their lives. And it seems like that is his aspiration. So, you know, tragedy. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And just those lines about like how he remembers the minutia, like camp stars, his grandma's hands, the Firebird, Jane and Carolyn. It makes me. And aren't think- those? I think one of the reasons that people love this is his narration behind it all. Because yeah. you see this person that you probably wouldn't like, but when you hear the narration, it's like I've had moments where I've just remembered things like that that only mean something to me and basically nobody else, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, it makes me think a little bit of like, well, in the hypothetical where I'm in that scenario, what am I imagining? I guess it would be guitars and probably like a Nintendo controller. <laughs> right. And uh, right. my mom reading to me and yeah. um, the pets we had as a kid, you know, 
Oh, probably, CJ. Yeah, CJ awesome and, and a lot of the cats. <laughs> I think I yeah. remember CJ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you would <laughs> yeah. remember CJ. So, I don't know. But what do you what do you think it speaks to about nostalgia in general, though? Just on that topic, like he's super nostalgic about his job at the burger joint. That's right. And so much so that he that's where he ends up. <laughs> I and love that thinks, line. I'm sure there's been incredible advances in the industry, but surely you have some sort of training program. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, he, and he thinks back to just his life at that point, just partying and getting late, I think he said. But eventually that feeling will run out too mm-hmm. and just constantly chasing. Yeah. Yeah. Nostalgia. That's something that I think about a lot is that like people are nostalgic for that, but also is that like, I feel like, you must have taken a wrong turn if you're really nostalgic for a time when you were more shallow and more insecure and more like, remember one of the things uh, Jordan Peterson says is don't think about, don't compare yourself to anyone else, compare yourself to yourself yesterday. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I've heard another quote, like if you're not cringing when you're thinking about a younger self, then that's probably <laughs> a bad sign because there hasn't been any personal <laughs> development, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, as someone who knew me as a teenager, I'm sure Danica could vouch for how much worse it is back then to have known me than now. Actually, that's what I was going to ask you, David. Do you have any uh, embarrassing stories about Luke as a teenager? Well, Luke always thought like that. He, I think he was too cool for me, oh, generally speaking. That's true. Oh, well, I definitely funny, thought cause... that. <laughs> I always thought Luke was a lot cooler. I remember, okay, so here's a memory I have of, of Luke as a teenager. He got a job at Subway. Yes. And uh, the family was so proud of him for his first job. We would go and get subs at Subway while he was working. I've never whenever done we that. Visited, I always, and I always thought like, oh, man, like Luke is so cool. He's like got a job. <laughs> like He makes money. And so I kind of followed in his footsteps with that first uh, job on the uh, on the golf course, like well, getting a job really young. Yeah. Not a lot of 16 year olds get jobs anymore. I find so technically, David, I actually got my first job when I was 10. Oh, was your this paper, paper route? The paper route. Uh, and don't you remember coming on the I paper route a few times? Too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would say actually that probably was pretty unique for me in life was to have responsibilities like that at, at age 10, you know? Yeah, like you had a job that you had to do every day. I had a job I had to do every day. I had an income. I had my yeah. own money. <laughs> uh, not lots, but, you know, it's just... Um, I do think actually, I mean, this is not really related, but I think having that kind of responsibility that young was hugely positive in my life. Yeah, I think so like, too. I also had a paper route when I was yeah. like 12. I was I was cleaning out horse stalls. That's what I was doing at yeah. 12. But it's like yeah. when you have a responsibility that if you shrug it off, it's not just your parents who have to pick up the slack, it's but your it's like boss. it's your yeah. boss and it's like kind of a stranger in a way, like or at least not a friend. You're like Yeah. You're like, <laughs> yeah. "Oh, okay." This is a different expectation of me, and it's a it's an it's an amazing life skill to yes. have in, internalized responsibility and self control almost in a way like it's discipline, right? It's yeah. it's what I what a lot of people lack is just the willingness to say this thing that I don't really want to do must be done so that I can achieve some further aim. Yeah, and you're right, Danica. Lester's desire to go back to flipping burgers <laughs> makes it seem like he's just pursuing less responsibility. Yeah. <laughs> And I think his existential answer is part of the way, but not all of the way. Part of the way is rebelling against his malaise, but it also is just seems like he 
is still choosing to swim in the ocean of I feel Lester. Like he just comes to all the wrong conclusions until the end. Until he's actually thinking yeah. about his family, and then he dies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So at least symbolically, it's a redemptive thing, even if right. it's a tragedy in in a more kind of traditional sense of the word tragedy. So true, true. Yeah, I don't know. That's Lester to me. Yeah. All right, Carolyn. Is it bad that I think she's actually, well, maybe my second favorite character? She's your second favorite? I think so. Who's your favorite? Probably Jane. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, no, it's not bad. I mean, Why would I, it be bad? I don't really I don't feel... Think, I think it would make sense because I don't really like any of the other characters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it is a low thinking... bar in this film. <laughs> I was thinking about that. No, it's not like I don't... Well, apart from the colonel, whatever his name was, Ricky's dad. Mm. He's the only one I actually didn't like right but i just felt bad for all the characters it wasn't really a matter of disliking any of them i felt bad for him too yeah actually you know what i didn't like jane's boyfriend i i he annoyed me for you didn't like ricky no the only one that had like self-possession the only one who seemed to have any depth to himself at all true like (laughs) well he was a teenager this always bothered me because the garbage bag thing you know it's so deep and everyone loves it and i'm also i'm kind of like you know, there are more beautiful, interesting things in the world than like the random chaos of a garbage bag in the wind. <laughs> yeah, but when you're really high and you smoke like military wow. grade weed, <laughs> what do you expect? True. I, true. I don't know. I feel like you might be being a bit too literal here, David. <laughs> I know. Like I the, know, uh, yeah. I actually, I love that scene. I love the garbage bag scene. And I, because I understand why Ricky says it's beautiful, and it's because it's something that is unexpected. And it's kind of like, even though it's a garbage bag, it's like a combination of nature and artifact interplaying in a way that like the the bag wasn't designed to get flown around in a gust of wind. It's kind of like an accidental side effect of existing in the world. And I think that it's that kind of serendipity of beauty that would be the point that I would make. I don't know if Ricky would make it, but it's just like the accidental beautiful things you come across in your day that weren't planned by anyone, but because existence is so chaotic and random, every now and again, everything just lines up perfectly for something you didn't expect, and it kind of strikes you in a nice way, right? Right. I think it's also beautiful because you're imagining yourself at 16 or 17 or however old they are, and coming across something like that, Yeah, and it brings you back to that feeling too. Because you're right, David, literally it's not a beautiful thing, but I think it's like <laughs> to, to me, saying. so much of beauty, beauty is so much in the surprise of it existing, right? In the, oh, it showed up. Right. True. Anyway, so yeah, so Carolyn, you're talking about your, Carolyn, your favorite character. <laughs> second favorite. Yes. So your okay. second favorite so I, character. I understand why Carolyn would be your second favorite. Well, I'm going to try really hard not to answer this as a mom. Okay. <laughs> so I think I felt so, well, obviously she's got super issues around perfectionism Mm -hmm. like with that scene where she's slapping herself in the face in the car or whatever and obviously she's just as unseen and lonely and repressed as anyone else in this movie but she's got this insane desire for this false sense of success Mm -hmm. and i just feel really sad for her i don't know how did you yeah just before you give your thoughts, David, I want to frame it like this. Like Carolyn's character reminded me the most of the um, achievement fallacy from Infinite Jest. 
Well, that's yeah. why I love Infinite Jest so much. It has there's multi like it reminds you that there's a lot of ways to fuck up your life, right? <laughs> yeah. And it isn't and it isn't just by being lazy. You can also fuck it up by over be, being an overachiever and being obsessed with the next thing all the time and never being satisfied and then and then reaching a point where you're like, "Why is this not fulfilling me?" It's like you said earlier, Danica, like we have to be responsible for our own happiness. We cannot let external events be what dictates, you know, our emotions. But on the same breath, like, be careful what you pursue in life. I mean, we've talked about this on the podcast a lot. Process. Love the process. Mm-hmm. And my, again, my cousin Dan and I have been talking about this a lot because we're trying to get good at chess. And it's like, if we are only wanting to get good at chess to be good at chess, then we are wasting our time. Mm-hmm. But yeah. if we if we respect the beauty of the game and respect the beauty of, of the learning of the of the grind if you can enjoy that like i think that's one of the greatest truths in life is if you can if it's not about the outcome if it becomes about what you're doing that can be exciting and in that sense i love that she loves the roses right yeah i love that she really enjoys the process of doing this simple thing that seems to bring her a lot of interest and enjoyment like we she kind of gets made fun of in the movie for it but like What's wrong with gardening? Totally. Right? And she's creating one little part of beauty in her miserable life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I like I like that she gardens. It makes sense. It's like a meditation. It's just, I think the shadow side of all of this that she exemplifies is that she, at least the way Lester paints it, and I think because we get enough of her scenes, I think this is accurate. She actually doesn't like the process of gardening as much as she likes just having a beautiful garden for other people to comment on. Right? right. Like she does seem so True. obsessed. True. She seems obsessed with the image of success. And, and there's the problem, right? If she enjoyed the process of gardening, yeah. it's, it's exactly the same activity the the perception that you have of the activity is what determines whether it's healthy for you or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But she does bring the roses inside, though, for herself to enjoy. Yes. And I think that's just one little thing that yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. redeems that. Well, that's certainly the antidote yeah. to that ailment she is afflicted with. But I think my observation of her is that she she falls into the trap that everyone falls into, which is, oh, everyone must value the same things I value and view the world the same way I view it. So that makes her see every, all of these people in her lives on this kind of hierarchy scale of like, okay, buddy is above me. So I need to worship him in this hierarchy, but Lester is below me. So I can be contemptuous of him because he isn't reaching. And So I think that this element of her way of viewing the world is so disastrous to her own feelings when it comes to Jane. Because Carolyn views Lester as so less than her, just logically it would entail that Jane would view it the same way too. And so just by proxy, Carolyn has to be the favorite parent because Lester is so pathetic and not worth it. And so it's a huge it's a hugely confronting and, and and hardship mentally and emotionally for Carolyn when she finds out that Jane also doesn't like her, right? Like yeah. Jane's yeah. Jane's distaste of Carolyn is maybe not as much as Lester's, but it's a lot closer to that than away from it. And I think part of Carolyn's struggle is that 
she has built mentally the world up in such a way that if someone else doesn't view it her way, doesn't share her intuitions about the way the world should be, she's going to be so taken aback by that. And I, I, I would submit she was quite taken aback by the fact that Jane was mad at her too in all of this, right? Yeah, and also her world crumbled a bit when she found out that Buddy, was that his name? Buddy Kane? Yeah, the, the king. Also wasn't Give successful. me the royal treatment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was really gross. Yeah, that was a funny scene. Uh, um, but he also wasn't successful. Like He's in the middle of a divorce. Mm-hmm. And uh, her world kind of crumbled a little bit, I think. And he's not going to be what she thinks he is. Mm-hmm. Right? This is another meditation. I guess there's two major things to talk about with Carolyn. Her inability to see what other people will actually see because she's so myopic in her own worldview, but also that this is the cult of worshipfulness. Like you worship something, it's going to let you down, especially if it's another person or personality, right? Like she's built up Buddy in her mind to be the king, the king of real estate. So when it turns out that he's in the middle of a divorce and he's actually not that interested in spending any quality time with her, that's very devastating for her, Mm -hmm. right? In a way that is unfortunate because it doesn't need to be that way. Yeah, exactly. One of my favorite things about her character, though, is the commentary on the self-help movement. Oh, yeah. And uh, I love the tape that was playing in the car. I don't know if that was a legit <laughs> self, self-help self yeah. tape or whatever. It actually reminds me of Fargo a bit, right? Like, yeah. 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 Totally. And I think, I can't remember if she was doing a pose or it was the mantra she was saying when she was getting the house ready for sale, but it really reminded me of, I think, maybe 2017, there was that big study that came out or TED Talk, I think it was Amy Cuddy, the psychologist who, do you remember that power pose thing? Uh, I remember hearing about that, yeah. Yeah, so you're supposed to stand, stand a certain like way, Superman or something for like yeah. 20 seconds or whatever it was. <laughs> right. And I think there was some supposed science around how like if you change the way you act, it'll change or change the way you think you're going to act, it'll imp- impact how you actually act. And Right. I think in the replication crisis, that was all debunked, but mm. it just reminded me of that. And in the ni- in the late 90s, I imagine that was pretty, well, I don't know. Oh, yeah, what, tapes, what was tapes were huge. Our yeah. parents loved tapes. Totally. Brent, yeah. or Uncle Brenton and, and Aunt Barb loved tapes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, my personal critique of the self-help genre or movement is that it's a insufficient remedy or or antidote to a real problem and yet it's sold as like it's so shiny and flashy that it's sold as the antidote all you need for your existential problems are all here found 1999 uh, or you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) get the double set for only 35.99 you know that that kind of sizzle to it Mm -hmm. i think belies any sort of authentic psychological vitality under underpinning it, any science around something like CBT, I think self-help just package, repackages anything worthwhile as commercial exploitative, mm-hmm. which is, you know, another potential observation on the shallow side of American consumerism. Mm-hmm. And another way to prey on vulnerable people. Yeah, because clearly... I always thought of the self-help movement as kind of like a cult, but for people who don't believe in religion, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Yeah, people are... You know what it is? the god of your own universe, and but the truth of the matter is like you're not actually improving anything. You're just mm. like 
pumping yourself up, but deep down you're depressed because nothing in your life is improving. <laughs> you know what it, the thought, the comparison I was, that came to mind when you said that, David, is that um, the self-help cult is like the sugar-free gum of cults. you know it's like it's not the real thing but it's there if you like kind of want to taste you just want to chew on some rubber (laughs) well yeah most self-help groups don't have enough like you know deep world building ideology and guns to really be like (laughs) yeah a great cult but you can dabble yeah yeah it's uh, (laughs) a you're you're sticking your toe in it to bring it back to the movie the self-help doesn't help Carolyn, right? It's an That's what it, I mean. It, it, it's it's like a, it's being used as a crutch yeah. because she believes she's doing something to make progress on herself, but nothing externally is changing for her at all. Yeah. And what actually does help is sex and guns. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there you go. But even that is short term. <laughs> 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 yeah, I know. I just maybe I'll linger on this for a second because I think this is really important. And this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately is that, and this is also true, I think, in our time in 2020, not just in 1999. I think one of the ailments is that our problems are so deep, actually. Our problems are so existentially deep. And those are way too painful to front to, to confront and talk about. So there's a market for half measures and pseudo band-aids for our problems that don't actually solve any of it because again we are complicated creatures with a first person spatial temporal existence that has the vicissitudes that it does to weigh on our souls well it's kind of nefarious right because it makes us feel like we're doing something about our problems and therefore it gives us that sense of catharsis and like oh i'm making progress but you're just you're in a hamster wheel yeah, well, and I mean, to put it in terms that have been really true fiction style, it's like all the ire is directed at the microaggressions as we ignore the genocides in China. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, exactly. it's that exactly. it's that misalignment and mis- missing of triaging our problems that means they never get solved. They yeah, never get solved. Exactly. And, we, and then we wonder them. why, you know, we, we reach a point in our life where things aren't the way we wanted them and we wonder how we got here. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I think that, I mean, that's what I see in in Carolyn's life in this. She's like, how did I get here? Why am I so unhappy? mm -hmm. Why is there no satisfaction, right? And she's just disappointed in everything around her, including herself. And because you haven't talked about it for a while, David, I want to open up for you to give a riff on the worshiping of another personality. (laughs) Or or building it up because Carolyn worships Buddy in a way that is so obviously unhealthy. And even like, (laughs) <laughs> that scene at the party is so hilarious where Lester keeps like, okay, honey, I won't be weird. <laughs> and then just makes out with her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just, just like, yeah. it's, yeah, it's even like, obvious I, to Lester, the world's least observant person, what's going on here. <laughs> yeah, I think like um, that goes, I mean, it, it goes back to this principle that I'm really trying to refri- refine in my own mind of an internal versus external locus of control because to truly admire another person can be a good thing. Mm. But if by admiring them, you, you feel less then that's not, I think authentic admiration. It's projection, right? It's a desire for something outside of yourself to provide you with the necessary validation to justify your own happiness, which is, which is problematic because nobody can give you that. And just in the case of how Lester is kind of like 
lusting after Angela, but not actually Angela, just his, you know, perception of who she is, because the right. actual one is an innocent girl who's a virgin, right? Mm -hmm. But that's not what his lustful projection is. In a similar vein, her projection on Buddy is exactly the same thing. It's not who Buddy is. He's not. You're not loving a real person. You're creating a fantasy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, I think, that's the danger. It's not a danger to like love with reckless abandon someone, but you have to love the person. Yeah. Well, I mean, not, it's not like <laughs> it Carolyn. Your projection. It's not like Carolyn has spent years with Buddy and has come to admire his character and his nobility, let's say, or anything like the way he treats people in life. She worships his face on a bus bench. Because right? to her, for somehow she's got it in her head that that is going to matter when we're all being eaten by worms. You know what I mean? <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know. You have any thoughts on any of that, Danica? I guess I just feel like she's probably, yeah, that pursuit of success for the wrong reasons, not internal motivation. But I think she's also forgetting everything else. I know that's the whole point, like in terms of her responsibilities as a mother. At first, I felt really sympathetic towards her as a new mom myself. Mm -hmm. There's just so much on your shoulders to carry. But she's kind of a shitty mom, too. <laughs> and so <laughs> I don't know. I feel a bit conflicted about that. Like, has she just given up on on everything outside of the pursuit for her own success? Well... We talked about this in, I think it was our part two of our True Detective episode, but when Woody Harrelson's character says the real, the real enemy was inattention, mm -hmm. and yeah. I think I yeah. think a lot of this movie could be <laughs> framed in inattention unto death. Yeah, right. And, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I think it's again, it's it's. I love the way. I, I mean, I will talk about David Foster Wallace till I die. The way that I love that he frames it is that it's it's not a moral failing as much as it is an unconscious sliding into yeah into a kind of existential state of being that you don't like mm -hmm. and you don't want to be in. You you end up in a place you don't even want to be because of a lack of effort. Yeah. Jane Jane makes her feelings in this movie no secret to anyone, <laughs> but no one's listening to her except yeah. Ricky. Yeah. No. Right? <laughs> yeah. So it's inattention to the obvious even. So. Yeah. Yeah. True. That's kind of what I see with her and Lester and, and obviously Frank, the colonel and Angela. So mm -hmm. anyway, any other thoughts on Carolyn? Well, I just wrote a note that I think was a quote from her, which reminded me about what I said before, but... Mm. I think she said to Jane, the most important lesson is you can only count on yourself. Right. Which is really right, weird which, because she doesn't which is really bullshit. walk that. Yeah. <laughs> well, but that's her projection of an image. Yeah. Right? That's well, you her. Know, you know what I think's happened here is she's been hurt by life. She's disappointed by life. And so instead of, you know, learning the lesson of, well, I can't have expectations of others. that Because my expectations hurt me. She learns the lesson that I'm just going to be you know, go into my shell and live like this isolated existence of myopic self-reflection. Mm -hmm. All right. So um, tell us about Jane, Danica. Well, I think the funny thing was that she's saving up for a boob job. But obviously, I mean, she doesn't really need that. But I think that's... <laughs> yeah, she has huge boobs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but 
But I guess like that point aside, it kind of speaks to her being not really aware of who she is and what people want out of her and where she's going as well. But anyway, I really like Jane. I resonated. Yeah, she's just hopelessly lonely until Ricky starts filming her, which is very, <laughs> very obvious. She's finally seen. She's yeah, literally true. seen. Literally seen. <laughs> yeah, and she just loves it. Yeah. I felt really, uh, I felt the most sympathy for her mm-hmm. out of any character in this movie because both her parents are ignoring her. And going bananas. And going bananas. And then her dad is ignoring her so that she, he can pay attention in a very inappropriate and lustful way to her friend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like she has a lot. He never paid me this much attention. And then her friend is also just kind of assuming similar to Carolyn, Angela just assumes that Jane just wants what she wants. Yeah. Which is again, her own superficialities. And isn't necessarily her friend for the right reasons. Oh, yeah. I, I don't really understand why they're friends. Other yeah. than I guess they do cheerleading together. I guess. <laughs> Which is weird. She's a cheerleader. It is strange. And so, yeah, Ricky Ricky filming her at least, what did she say? She's like, he's got a weird confidence. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And I mean, I guess for me personally, because I work with kids and young people, like it's harder to tell often with teenagers, but they just still so often have the same needs as kids, which is encouragement and participation in their life i think uh not just treated as a token object someone to pick up and drop off but yeah they want people to spend time with them mm -hmm. and so her yeah her loneliness is crippling Mm -hmm. it feels like in a way that lester and carolyn's loneliness i don't know seem kind of more their fault yeah Uh, yeah jane's doesn't and i think it's probably age you know with her, I find, I think, you know, she's kind of created as a character to be a reason that, you know, that young men would watch this film because it's like, oh, she's the girl next door, but she's also, right. you know, really deep and she, but she's a cheerleader, right? And it's <laughs> like, she's kind of crafted for that certain kind of nerdy boy who who would be maybe creepy and- yeah. Or a girl to be, well, you know, Just saying. But for, from the male perspective, like that would be creepy enough to take films. Like that's creepy. Like, <laughs> but, creepy. yeah, like, like norm. And I feel like in the normal world, that's not a cool thing to do. Right. And yet they try it's to not make the best to be way to get a girl interested in you. And I don't know. It's weird. But I think she's she's, you know, understanding of that because she's a little bit more interested in the world than maybe her outward facade would make you think. Mm. yeah that's true yeah and she obviously has a lot to say but doesn't have anyone a to say it to or anyone who she thinks would listen so do you think with her danica there's any like teenage girl specific things that david and i would never really relate to that you noticed with her well i think just everything she is is what every teenage girl really feels like like i think angela feels like her too Sure. Deep down. Right. And this is something I think I noticed from this time watching it and that I don't think I ever noticed before. And perhaps I'm just making this up. But did you notice how at the beginning she was wearing more makeup? And then as the film went on, she was wearing less and less makeup. And it was the opposite for Angela. Or is that something <laughs> that I just not, made up? I did not notice that. But I think it kind of 
if if that is true and if it's not maybe they should have made it that way but i think <laughs> i don't think i think it just speaks to how her character develops and how right. she just kind of starts giving a shit less about mm. uh hiding behind and then angela maybe needing yeah. to feel like she's more seen yeah so she's going to although i ha- yeah i have to say i don't think i've ever commented on a woman's makeup before ever. <laughs> and I and I, I and I mean this. I don't think I've ever talked to a guy about f- women's makeup ever. No. The, I'm pretty sure it was a thing, but maybe I need to rewatch it. You may be right, but I'm just saying this could be more unique to me and maybe David and but I think it's probably a a pretty comprehensive generality is that uh the only people I've ever heard talk about makeup and how makeup looks are other women. Yeah. <laughs> so I've so never, true. ever, ever heard a guy talk about how good a girl's makeup looks. Well, there. This is why you need a gr- <laughs> girl's. I think it's like. Um, this is why. Maybe it's the water we, need, we swim uh, in. We need your help on this on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. We need hey, dividends already. But you did notice that the boob job wasn't necessary. Well, yeah. <laughs> so. I've definitely talked about boobs before. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> Speaking of the nerd boys. You know, fangasm, a topless scene as well. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, okay. So, like, there's that interesting inverse arc then of Angela and Jane. Yeah. Where maybe, and then maybe it's because she meets Ricky. Mm -hmm. Ricky gives her a sense of a more interesting way of being in the world that doesn't involve makeup, I guess. Which is kind of sad in this movie that it had to be about a, a boyfriend kind of character getting her to that place, but... I think that is actually true for a lot of young girls. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think that there's a element of that where, and maybe this is a youth thing, but it could be a struggle in all of life where it's, oh, he's not the right one for you, whatever. He makes me feel different, right? Yeah. Or he makes me think different, or he's a bad boy or whatever, right? Like there's just something almost antisocial it's like cool to have an antisocial boyfriend yeah. when you're a teenager totally. almost, you know, True. Uh, who's a couple True. years older than you maybe or whatever, right? Like that, that's, it might be a stereotype, but it's also not untrue in the world, mm-hmm. right? True. So it's also interesting that her friend is the virgin, but she's banging Ricky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, like image versus yeah. authenticity. Reality, right? yeah. So yeah, yeah, I feel, I feel sympathy for jane but less as the movie goes on because i think mm-hmm. she grows she she seems like the character who grows into herself the best yeah i had a bit of a hard time watching it this time around because i'd seen ghost world so many times i think did either of you see ghost world which she's also in no i think it was released maybe a bit after this mm. and scarlett johansson's in that movie right and she plays kind of a similar character yeah it's just that whole thing about being being a girl, being the the friend who's not noticed as much, and then just like the ultimate dig of including by your own father, right? I think is is pretty hard. Yeah, for sure. So then that probably segues well into Ricky joining <laughs> this movie through Lester and Jane. How did Ricky not suicide in this movie? Like, I kept thinking about that. I don't know if that crushed either. Like, I feel like he's the type of kid who would shoot up a school, especially a movie was? made around that time. <laughs> yeah, but also, like, he had the most trouble. Well, not the most trouble. He taught. He, I, I would have imagined him as having the most trouble seeing meaning in the world, even though he turned out to be the only one who could could really do that. 
Um, well, from that point of view, I would say he actually sees a, a lot of the beauty. Like he, he clearly cares a lot about his mom. Yeah. And I think his mom being whatever ailment she has, it's not, they don't say what it is in the movie, I don't think. He obviously feels a lot of sympathy for her. Yeah. And I think him seeing what he perceives as goodness through her gives him a lot of energy mm-hmm. in the world. And he responded in a in the right way to his dad. Mm-hmm. In Not in a, oh, I'm going to be defeated by you way, but uh, like... I'm going to take, <laughs> I'm going to figure out how to trick you yeah, <laughs> kind of way. So I don't know if that answers what your point yeah, was. Yeah, I but. guess so. And I mean, perhaps it's just hard to understand that because he's one of the youngest characters in the movie, but perhaps the most wise. Yeah, I don't know. What do you think, David? What do you think about Ricky? Yeah, I think um, I like I like how he has more than one income stream. So he's you know <laughs> yeah smart. <laughs> he's very entrepreneurial. Uh, like he's not maybe he quits his job, but he also has a backup plan on how he's gonna have some cash on hand, right? Yeah, I think he's almost like almost put there as like oh you know if someone really gets to know your brooding internal soul, they'll love you kind of thing, which is a big you know fantasy for teenage boys. It's interesting because I feel like both like there's all kinds of fantasies go everyone's living their fantasy here but yeah, yeah. but in the weirdest way, Ricky's the only one living a positive here's a there's a positive element to his fantasy, which is that he's like found love on a deep level with someone yeah. So but he, obviously, he has a really traumatic life with a dad that like is willing to beat the crap out of him. Right. So, did either of you relate to Ricky when you think back of yourselves as teenage boys? A little bit, yeah. I think I was maybe I I don't like I was homeschooled, so I can hardly say I was cooler because I probably wasn't. But <laughs> <laughs> like I just I think I was more confident. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. I was definitely louder than Ricky. <laughs> that's <a laughs> that's true. I can... <laughs> I can confirm. But there's something I related to in the sense that he feels like he's seeing something deeper than the world around him. And because of that, he's less like he's trying to find that. It just seems like Ricky is always looking for that meaning behind the world in yeah. a way that I definitely related to in, in not just as a teenager, but even sometimes now I feel that way. But it's like, well, what's really going on? What's what's the beauty behind the bag in the wind kind of thing? Like the yeah. And I guess that answers my question from before about what keeps him from not suiciding. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean yeah. in in boring you know, philosophical terms would be like Kant saying, what is the thing in itself versus the thing as it appears to us? Yeah. You know, and uh, I think that he, I think Ricky feels like there's like um something metaphysical about the world that is only able to be apprehended if you can get over the kind of daily bullshit. Yeah. And yeah. as a symbol... It's actually very much of pothead philosophy. I <laughs> yeah, say. I was just going to say, it reminds me of smoking a lot of weed. <laughs> like, well, you know what? For what it's worth, even though I think the shallow version of that is just like, whoa, man, think about the deeper meaning of things. I think, <laughs> I think a lot of 
a lot of great art, and I'll tell you, a lot of songs I love were written by people who were stoned out of their mind when they wrote it. <laughs> hey, man, I'm not judging. I, there's no judgment. I'm just saying it's one of the things that's slowing down into that weed state or the green space, as some people call it, gets you is you get a little bit of perspective. Suddenly everything's like, oh. Right. Because it, most people, when they start smoking weed, get very anxious, right? Mm. Um, for the first couple of times because they're not used to that mental space. But if sure. you can kind of like sink into it i found at least in my experience like joe rogan for example loves mm. weed but and he loves it for this reason i think is because you can get a different perspective you right. can get the oh things are more connected than i thought you know what is the thing in itself whereas when you're like some people i think when they're sober their minds are just spinning yeah. on like on the same topic and just hammering it and you're not you're not stepping out of yourself you're trapped mm-hmm well, and I mean, it's that ability of Ricky's to not be encumbered by the things that just trip Lester up every day that make Lester admire him and be interested in his life and want to know what he's doing. And it's also that thing that is like the kryptonite to Angela. Like Angela doesn't like Ricky at all because she can sense that he will never be wild by her charms and yeah. sense and, yeah. and, and, and sense that's actually her sense of identity at this stage in her life that is um devastating this is this is gonna sound crazy but that i would say is where i feel most like him because i never have found myself kind of chasing after let's say women who were just you know using the traditional wiles to get me like that they were just mm. really attractive i just never really even paid attention to them it was always like soulful conversation and <laughs> Obviously, I wanted to be physically attracted to them, but like yeah. I always wanted more than just you know a body, right? I was oh it was, for sure, it, for sure. And I think <laughs> the juvenile or uh, slapsticky thing I'd say about that is like, why bother? I never even had a chance, so why even try to <laughs> <laughs> why even try to flirt with an attractive woman? But the more re mature and reflected part of me is like, you know what? Especially for an att a really attractive woman, what do I think she gets all the time anyway? Right. Yeah. And now that we're adults, probably she gets treated a certain way that she doesn't like because of how she looks. And I'm just not interested in being another one of those people who talks to an attractive woman that way. Because exactly. Exactly. if nothing else, I'll never stand out as an interesting conversation partner. And I like to stand out as an interesting conversation partner every now and again. <laughs> uh, yeah. And yet, obviously, Angela being a teenager hasn't adopted her own maturity of that yet so yeah but yeah i think that's an interesting point yeah ricky what does he say he's like you're totally ordinary and you know it and it's kind of ham-fisted with ricky and maybe it's like i don't know this is maybe the least subtle part of the movie but like the the massive difference between ricky and his presence and everybody else's in the movie makes it right. feel like, here's the binary. Look at the binary. Here's the dichotomy. Look at the, like, it just seems, it's not as subtle maybe as it could have been. But right. nevertheless, whether or not we can realistically imagine Ricky being that way at age 17 or whatever he is in life, it does provide that other way of being or narrative around, you know, Lester, you think X, but have you thought about A, B, C, D? Oh, Angela, you yes. think why, but have you thought of MQJLP, right? And that's just a useful heuristic for, 
your own emotional management, right? Yeah. In a more loving way, Ricky is the kind of person that could help Angela with her own emotion management. I think if she, yeah, if she realized that exactly. And if he was more willing to be kind about it, but I mean, I don't know, like Ricky is kind to Lester. So there is a kind of teaching going on. Maybe Ricky isn't even trying to do it, but there is a kindness Ricky shows to Lester that I found really pleasant in the film. Yeah. And he has a certain level of don't give a fuckery, but we're also, Exposed to him sharing with Jane his dad's room with the Nazi plate and all (laughs) the guns and stuff. So he also wants to be seen in a certain way or like have that part of his experience be Mm -hmm. seen. Yeah. Yeah, He wants to, he wants someone to know how much pain he's experiencing. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And super selective about how he does that. Yeah. And probably for someone like him, it's so much more scary to show that. Yeah. Because of how abused he's been. Yeah. You know? So even though there is an element of this kind of teenage potheady, oh, no one is really that actually cool. They just look that cool at that age. I don't know. There's something I found quite compelling about some of the points he was making. He wasn't a total caricature to me, even though I thought he was a little bit of one. Mm-hmm. Right, right. You know, so maybe that segues us organically into talking about Angela, though, which... She's the most minor of the main characters. Yeah, but... there's not... I mean, you, you, we don't even really get too much of her story. We get just the image that she projects into the world and then images, right? Yeah, she she brags about how much male attention she gets. She brags about how many guys she's fucked. And then she is astounded about Ricky. He didn't even look at me once. There's nothing worse than being ordinary... She reminded me so much of the trappings of the modern world. Like of all of the characters, maybe hers was the most overt because she was young. But it's like, once I build A, B, C in my life, I'll be happy. Just like you, yeah. Mrs. Uh, yeah. Mrs. Burnham. You did it, mm-hmm. right? Like she totally. like butters up Carolyn and I don't know, just like <sighs> she reminded me so much of the young person who just has the wrong orientation to go about their life because of what the most mundane commercial and thoughtless versions of television has, has told her she should want, you know? Yep. Yep. And, and to me, so me, she's a tragic character. Like we don't meet her parents. We don't know what her home life is like, but I'm not guessing it's very involved, you know? No, exactly. Let's be honest though. She did have the best burns in the whole show. (laughs) They were hilarious. This movie is pretty funny especially watching it now it's witty there's a lot of wittiness going on here yeah yeah but i mean there's something i'm maybe it's totally obvious but the juxtaposition between her at the beginning and her at the end with lester yeah when she and i remember the first time i watched this when she reveals i'm a virgin this is my first time i really was like oh you know just like that the 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 gap between how she's presented herself the whole movie I don't know. It's like one of the first times I really can remember thinking through, oh, she has a psychological defense mechanism that she's yeah. been using this whole time. But I think a lot of women get put, well, not women, young girls get put in that position where it's a bad thing to be a slut. But if you're going to get labeled a slut, you may as well act the part anyway. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 So yeah. it's like her own defense mechanism for dealing with how people perceive her, even though it's not true. But doesn't it kind of seem like she wants that label? 
Well, she's she's trying to own it because I think she's already been given it and probably suffers because of it. So do you, do you think she was ashamed of it? I think that it was probably used to put her down in the past. Like I right. don't I don't think that identity is really wanted by many young girls. Mm. And I, then I think it gets pushed upon you and then you have a choice whether to shy away from it or own it. Mm. That's interesting because I interpreted her outspoken, I sleep with tons of guys, that attitude, I, I interpreted it as more her compensation for her terror over not being seen or being seen as ordinary. Yeah, I think I think it could be like that too. Mm. And I also think she's super, super self-conscious and unsure of herself. Right. And if this is an identity people can easily see her in, mm-hmm. then she's going to go for it. And then that's interesting. Because there's some strength to that identity, sure. as hard as it could be. <laughs> and isn't it interesting how the only part of the movie where she feels, where it feels like she is happy even, is when Lester is kind to her yeah. and doesn't yeah. take advantage of her and treats her weirdly more like a child to protect yeah. versus an adult equal to sleep with, which they're clearly not. Yeah. Right? Yes. So yeah. Uh, it was interesting to see that change in her, right? It was like all she needed was like a, a kind adult, really. Totally. It felt like, you know, which speaks to me because... One of the first of the high five principles when working with kids is a caring adult. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And maybe it's the first time in a long time she's been treated her age or as a child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because because she maybe she matured really quickly and and men on the animalistic side just started treating her differently. And so she like I, I don't know what that's obviously I have no conception of what that would be like, but I just can't imagine it's very fun to suddenly be treated as something that can be used for satisfaction. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, merely. Like I imagine that. that would do a lot of really negative things to the psyche. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then put less effort into other parts of your wholeness as a person, I think. Right. Yeah. 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 If you interpret that being the thing about you that's worthwhile, yeah. that even when it happens, it doesn't fill your bucket. That's like a double devastation mm-hmm. and Ugh, knowing that yeah. there's a timeline on it too nobody's that beautiful forever right well and actually right. <laughs> this was a major moment for me um it was either earlier this year yeah i think it was earlier this year so that actress mina suvari who plays angela she's also in um american pie so those two huge movies that came out the two american movies that came out in 1999 yes. and she's in the She's the love interest in the Teenage Dirtbag music video by Weedis. Is she really? Yeah, she is. Oh, that's awesome. And so she's in a few of the American Pie movies. So she's like, you know, this darling, young sweetheart of the late 90s, early 2000s. And so I was talking to my friend Mark earlier this year, and we looked up on IMDb, and it was her 40th birthday. (laughs) And so there was something about Mina Suvari turning 40 that just totally caught me off guard <laughs> the the teenage sweetheart of that era is 40 yeah yeah so anyway any other thoughts on angela i don't think so no, she's she's it's another simple but vital you know oh well, she's a plot she's a plot point right yeah. her character is is a revolt is a necessary necessary for this telling of the story but she is not the centerpiece of this right. particular and, tale 
filmically, we would be remiss to not point out how awesome the rose petal scenes are mm-hmm. in, yes. in the yeah. film. And you know what I love about those? Well, obviously, the music is really cool and the sound. Like, it's so trippy. Yeah, it pulls and, you out of. And uncanny, and, and it pulls you out. The scenes are beautiful. The CGI isn't even terrible. Like, it's not great, but it's not terrible. It didn't age that bad. But I was just thinking, I love that these scenes happen and there's like nothing, there's no like big deal made about them. It's not like Lester is like, why are there roses everywhere? Mm-hmm. Right? It's not like, yeah. it's not even like Angela's like, look at all these roses. And obviously the rose and the rose petal is a little bit of a symbol. Like flowers are symbols for vaginas sometimes, you know? And this, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. how like the rose is like kind of the boss flower and there's rose petals. So like, there's the homage to Carolyn's garden in all of this too, but it being the most iconic visual of the film, right, is the rose parts. Like it's on, it's on the. I thought the cover. most iconic part was when he's masturbating in bed. Oh yeah, well, <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's <laughs> if you're camping. One of them, I, <laughs> I so loved those scenes again. You know. Yeah, they were really beautiful, For but sure. you almost yeah, and you. St- feel so uncomfortable yeah at yeah. the same time yeah exactly how old was she when they filmed this well if she she would have been nine, 18 19 okay so yeah yeah and she'd have to be because they there is a topless scene with her right mm-hmm. like you do see her boobs yeah but so thora birch to... was only 17 really yeah i think so she had to have her parents on set to watch oh, that weird yeah i guess if you're under 18 i'm pretty a parent sure consent sure. with actress i'm consent. pretty sure that was a thing but maybe uh, things i think i think you have to be 90s. at least 18 to get your own consent for yeah, movies, right yeah so anyway she was <laughs> around that age so yeah <laughs> well we're we're getting close but i obviously we have to talk about frank and the whole i don't know like danica talked to and i mentioned this like you know it, it feels a little bit anachronistic to to talk about accepting homosexuality and and gayness even i guess and yet this movie does such a good job of that just the whole like accepting of gay people and homosexuality like this probably being a harbinger and and just it's it it's almost like a really positive sign of achievement that even though this movie this movie's only 21 years old and it feels weird to have a we stick up for the gays message in it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Oh, okay. I mean the the only happy people in this movie were the gyms, weren't they? Yeah, exactly. Like, that's the real message yeah, of this story. Get, we should all be a bit more gay. Exactly, exactly. I mean, obviously Frank's hard assery and no nonsense and and intense homophobia the climax of this movie emotionally is when frank goes to kiss lester right after the whole movie of him being overtly homophobic and like why do they got to rub it in our faces like just the most almost cartoonish (laughs) like i don't know what what did you think about frank's arc in all this well I mean, obviously, he's got a lot of trauma and stuff, but he, he kind of got painted as just this absolutely horrible person. Mm-hmm. And really, though, I think what makes him as a character stand out is you you find out that he's been tormenting himself this whole time. Exactly, right? right? That, he's, that he's been filling his, his own internal world with misery by, at first, I think, defining himself around something, but then hating the thing that he's defined himself around, mm-hmm. right? Like one of the things that I say is 
oh, you're gay. That's inter- Now tell me something interesting about you. <laughs> right? right? Like a lot of people like to flout their sexuality as something that's interesting about them. And I, I just don't find that to be the most humanly interesting thing to talk to someone about. Right. Would now, you think it'd be now different? I understand if you're struggling with side, it with yourself. Pardon me? Like, I think what's different, interesting about Frank is that he's struggling with that himself and he's projecting it. Yes. Yes. Well, that's, I think my point is that he, uh, mm, okay. He's, he's defined himself as like this tormented, closeted gay person, right? right? In his mind. I'm not talking about how he defines himself to the world. I'm talking about mm-hmm. him in, inside of his mind. And he kind of worships that pain, right? He's like, oh, this is so part of who I am and yet I can't show it and like I'm tormented. Mm. But the gyms are just out there happy as can be because they've accepted who they are and nothing like, and they're both, they both have the same feelings. One, One group of them has accepted it. The other group has, or the other person has decided to suppress it. And <laughs> that reminds me of the scene when the gyms knock on their door and they say they're partners. And then he's like, well, what line of business are you in? You're partners. And then they was like, well, he's a whatever, a lawyer or something. He's an anesthesiologist. Like they kind of roll with that. Yeah. Pun- they roll with that punch, right? Like the yes. gyms roll with that yes. punch really well and very charmingly, I would say. And obviously I think Frank's character is so struggling with a particular, like, Maybe we want to talk about something like toxic masculinity. It seems like that is something Frank struggles with. Like he has this, because he's in the army, because he's got this kind of no-nonsense life about him and perspective of the world, he's a victim of his own existential place, which is, again, everyone's problem in this movie. Like I, I made a note, I love that you develop sympathy for the people you don't like when you see their lives a bit more. Yeah. Right? Yes. Well, it, it, I've heard it, uh, I don't remember what the quote is, but it's hard to really hate someone you actually know. Right, and from yeah. the outside, Frank is an extremely hateful person. And yes. we wouldn't like him. And I wouldn't like him if I just saw him on the street. But really, he just hates himself but more than it's anyone. That, it's that self-loathing yeah. and that inability to come to terms with his own identity and his own place in the world that is his own tragedy, mm-hmm. right? It's so tragic when people you know, decide that their own internal world is more important than relationships because they yeah. end up just being really lonely, mm-hmm. but like telling themselves, Oh, what's really important is how I feel about myself. Like, I mean, we see this in two and in, in many different ways, they're all lying to themselves in their heads, but in his, he's lying to himself and saying this evil part of me, I'm good for repressing, but with so much repression and just the hate spews from them in every direction. Right. Yeah. yeah, and Dan Savage, I have to quote Dan Savage, which Luke is getting really annoyed about. No, no, no. Dan Savage <laughs> But he is great. does talk about this on his podcast a lot because how often do we hear about politicians who are super pushing anti-gay legislation and then we find out they've been caught hiring <laughs> male prostitutes yeah, or whatever. Or, like, or, yeah. or, or evangelical religious figures yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. And know? it happens all the time and it still mm-hmm. happens. And so I think in that way, it, that is pretty relevant well it's um i mean there's a lot of psychology here to be talked about that i'm not an expert on i would just be speculating but it's like i think you become fascinated with the taboo yeah right and then you harp and harp and harp on something but it's so often in your mind 
and so much of our subconscious seeps in where it's like, I wonder what that would be like. Or the you opposite, know? you're you take that up as a cause because it's something you hate so much about yourself and you yeah. don't want people to put you in that box or well, you and you're ashamed of those you urges, of yeah, right. And so obviously, all of Frank's persona. I mean, it's the kind of thing where it's like almost uncomfortable, all of his gay bashing throughout the movie. Yeah. But, yeah. but again, I think this well, is I a think great gay example. Bashing is always uncomfortable. Well, <laughs> that's true. We've talked about, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. We talked about how like level three narrative is when it depicts something awful to show a greater truth underneath it, right? Like in Huck Finn the use of the N-word and yes. the yes. implication of slavery is there to get at a deeper truth of the common humanity between Huck and Jim. And I think similar in this movie, the overt homophobia and gay bashing of Frank is to get at the greater underlying narrative truth of his desires himself and what he feels about himself that he wants. Like, that is storytelling genius to have a character like Frank in this and then want to go and be with and kiss Lester in the rain, yes. right? Like what a great yeah, scene it that is. was. It's, it's such story, an impactful it's scene. Genius, I agree. It's such an impactful scene. And then with Frank having spent the whole movie, like expecting Ricky to live by his code and not trying to learn about Ricky. It's another amazing example of an existential, <laughs> someone unmoored existentially, but also with this great tie-in of like a, a kind of civil rights aspect to it too, yeah. almost or like yeah, a, it's very well. It's I mean I think this is why I won Best Picture, right? It's got that uh, the nuances there. Yeah, and it's not just a. I, I love. I, we've talked about this lots. Like it's so it's so much. Be- These things are so much better done in storytelling form, I think, than in propositional form. I think for politics and legal change, yeah, propositional form is best. But instead of making a sign that says gay people are good, they have a movie that says gay people are fine, but in an emotionally compelling way, right? Yes. And and yes. And, and the gay, like, because it was 1999, this would have been something way more taboo probably yeah than yeah. than it is now and it's just i i don't know like i like seeing these kind of movies that are passively trailblazers in this way in one form or another you know because it's not about anything superficial in this movie it's about like the real life torment of a gay people getting abused by by people like frank which is awful but also those people's own struggles right? Yes. With their own yes. feelings. Yeah, you're right, Danica. The most normal people in this movie are the gyms. It's true. I love it's them. It's so yeah. great. Yeah. And yeah. and Ricky. Ricky is like, well, that's just the thing, Dad. They don't think they're being terrible or they don't think they're being awful. <laughs> right. right. Like, right. it's so obvious. Can't you get out of your own solipsism for one minute? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And then, obviously, Frank kills Lester. So, mm-hmm. I After guess... killing his wife. Oh, not, really? Not literally, but... Oh, yeah. Man, just she's nothing. just such a shell of a woman. Yeah, true. Yeah. True. Yeah. So there's like, yeah, I don't know. I guess Frank is the is the, <laughs> is the the loose end character that uh, doesn't have a resolution of any sort. <laughs> no, <laughs> Or he true. wouldn't because he'll probably be going to jail. Be in prison so. or something, yeah. So anyway, the only other thing I wanted to say about this movie in a movie sense is I just thought the music was amazing. 
I loved the music. Mm-hmm. The yeah, soundtrack the is incredible. Great. I had to look up that song that's playing in the living room when Lester goes to at, at first thinking he's going to be intimate with Angela and it's a song by Annie Lennox and it's just a beautifully haunting song. It's like the perfect song for the scene, you know? Yeah. Yeah. As you know, I'm a sucker for soundtracks and music. So and I know Danica is too. <laughs> yeah. I really liked it. So is there anything we didn't touch on Danica that is in your mountain I guess of notes? She, I guess just going back to Ricky's mom a bit. Mm. I mean, we don't learn a lot about her, but right, right. I think she still is a really important character. And represents all of the repression that all of them are feeling. Mm. And just that catatonic state that she's in is just, I think, how everybody in the film really feels. Perhaps. Yeah, she's like a, a physical instantiation of everyone's mental life. Yeah. 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 What do you think, David? F- final thoughts on American Beauty? I liked what we were saying at the beginning. and I really I would like to reiterate it. I think... So often uh, the pendulum swings too far one way and then too far the other. And I think the critique that American Beauty is making was so profound at its time and has created a generation of people that I think do really care more about being aware and like minimalism and spending money on experiences and not objects. But I guess my encouragement would be don't go the way of Frank and make that a selfish act. You can make that a meaningful act in the world. You can build something as opposed to just consuming, which I th- it's kind of he just becomes even more of a consumer, but a consumer of experience. Do you mean Lester? Yeah. Oh, okay. You, you said Frank. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so don't buy Lester. guns. Yeah. <laughs> or Nazi yeah. plates. Yeah, 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 yeah like yeah, Lester's, yeah. Lester's reaction is kind of more hedonistic and a little bit nihilistic. As opposed yeah, it's to also the, just selfish, right? Like yeah. you said at the beginning, he he hurts his own family. Who at the end, the beautiful moment is him realizing he still loves his family, and then he's taken from them because of his own selfishness, essentially. Mm-hmm. Well, not his own selfishness, but you guys know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I guess I just love that this like a mainstream existential film. <laughs> Yes. I don't know if it'd yeah. be that like you could make a movie like this, but I think it'd be like a indie or a Bloomhouse, you yeah. know, kind of like or A twenty four type movie, totally. not a major motion picture studio movie. Yeah, and just um, it's a movie about nothing, and yet it's their characters' lives and just how they've slidden into inattention and subconscious living in a way that tears them out of meaning, and I I love that message is is like being more consciously mindful of your own life exactly you don't don't just find yourself in these you know quagmires of your own place in the world so you're gonna watch it a 22nd time i'm maybe when you're you're on on the cusp of your midlife crisis And, and also just how it's about beauty, you know, like yeah, the things that it are really aesthetically about, pleasing. About making sure you pay attention to beauty. Yeah, and I mean, being in Nelson right now, like this is a very beautiful town. That's you know, true. In the winter time, when it snows, and got the mountains right there. They're just sitting there right in your face. And you know, it's <laughs> even something as simple as like yesterday, I was shoveling uh, the driveway, and just the snow itself is nicer here than the snow in Alberta. Yeah, you know, it's just yes. it's fluffier it's and it's sleekier. lighter. <laughs> <laughs> and it's prettier. It's not just like flurries moving sideways because of the wind. And it's just like, I even was like, the snow is beautiful here. The snow itself, like 
in 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 the mountains in BC, it's like the platonic ideal of snow. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. And so I, just, a, I had that of- feeling for a second yesterday. I was like, wow, the snow here is beautiful. And it's just those little things that I love. Because yeah. like Lester's last line is like, it's hard to stay mad when there's so much beauty in the world. You can't help but feel anything but gratitude. Yes. You know? So yes. like that's the hopeful message that comes out of the end of Lester, I guess. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. So, any other thoughts? It's no surprise, Luke. Snow surprise? It's no surprise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm really glad we finally did this movie. I'm I'm a little surprised it's, you know, at this late, episode 74, but... Uh, well, here we know, are. <laughs> better late than never. And Earlier you mentioned you were going to talk about the Kevin Spacey oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess the interesting question would be like, is there anything an actor or actress could do that would make you retroactively hate their roles right like the thing that's interesting this is an observation is i do have a little bit of a harder time with kevin spacey's character in house of cards because his character in that show is a little bit more like it sounds like he was like in real life (laughs) as opposed to like lester burnham doesn't sound at all like real life kevin spacey no you know no and it's like so the movies where it's completely different like K-Pax or, you know, LA Confidential, these great, great roles he's had. I don't feel the same kind of like, eh, you know. <laughs> so just again, to reiterate to all listeners out there, if you like Really True Fiction, you can find us on Facebook. You can send us email, reallytruefiction at gmail.com. Uh, you can subscribe on all major podcasting apps to get notified when new episodes come out. Is there anything internet related you want to say about yourself, Danica? <laughs> I'll pull an Alex one and say, you can find me here <laughs> <laughs> on this episode. There we go. Fiction, yeah. <laughs> um, well, again, Danica is the OG fan of RTF and a longtime friend. And so I'm really glad. Thanks for being a guest. Thanks. I had a lot of fun yes, with you too. Danica. Yes. It was great having you on. Yes. Uh, or, or Kevin Malone, 69. <laughs> don't want you to forget about that. I can't change that. You know, I did that for a joke for your review and then I know. I'm forever Kevin Malone, 69. It's just hard to imagine him nining, let alone 69, you know, it'd be a bit cumbersome, yeah. so to speak. So this has been another episode of really true fiction. My name is Luke Mason. My name is David Parker. And I'm Danica. And uh, may the force be with you. And also with you. (laughs) Thanks, everyone.